April is National Poetry Month, and over the years, we have held an annual poetry service in a few different formats. This year, though, rather than selecting a theme and reading many different poems by various poets on that theme, we're experimenting with the focus on a specific poet. Individual poems can certainly be moving and meaningful without knowing anything about the author, But knowing more about an author's life and background can give the entirety of their work more complex and intricate dimensions. And if we continue with this format, I look forward to sharing with you in the future about the life and the poetry of Walt Whitman, Gwendolyn Brooks, Audrey Rich, Denise Levertov, Shijlo Miloš, Audre Lorde, Langston Hughes, and many more. For today, however, our focus is on one of America's most beloved uh, 20th century poets, Elizabeth Bishop. The main reason I chose to start with her was when I was thinking about which poet to choose, I noticed that Megan Marshall had published a biography of Bishop just last year. And I'm typically interested in anyone that Megan Marshall wants to write about. Uh, the first, uh, many of you have been, been around here a while, know that actually I've done two previous sermons before this one on Megan Marshall biographies that were inspired by them. The first was Margaret Fuller, A New American Life, when I learned that a biography about a Unitarian woman from the 19th century had won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize in the category of biography or autobiography. I was intrigued. It's a, w- a wonderful, uh, moving book. The other was Marshall's The Peabody Sisters, which was a finalist for the 2006 Pulitzer Prize and was about three more incredible Unitarian women from the 19th century. Although Elizabeth Bishop was not a Unitarian, when I was discerning which poet to focus on for this year, I knew that Megan Marshall would not lead me astray. And as I began to learn more about Bishop, it was a bonus of sorts to learn that she actually published fewer than approved fewer than 90 poems for publication during her lifetime. Unlike some poets whose collected works are these giant uh, tomes, uh, there was an appeal in knowing that I could certainly read Elizabeth Bishop's entire catalog uh, prior to this sermon. Although she lived to be 68 and was a working poet for decades, she she published so few poems primarily because she um, demanded this incredibly high standard for herself. She wrote of being determined to never try to publish anything until I thought I had done my best with it, no matter how many years it took or never to publish at all. Full disclosure, I'm not necessarily recommending this approach. Indeed, I try to encourage myself to ship your art, as the saying goes. You know, sermons, they got to come out weekly. You know, blog posts, whatever, uh, tweets, right? That's the age we live on. Sort of erring on the side of getting your work out into the world, not allowing your lizard brain of fear to keep you from, from publishing, to allow the perfect to be arguably the enemy of the good. At the same time, I can respect that Elizabeth Bishop's legacy is 80-something poems that she was pleased with 100%. So although she published only approximately 90 poems in her lifetime, what she lacked in quantity, she more than made up for in quality. Indeed, it was said, presumably with not just a little bit of jealousy, that never has so little work dragged in so many prizes. But behind each of her poems lay an immense amount of focus, care, and revision. 
her poems have been described as small world. I hope you got a sense of that in that, that poem that Nancy helped unpack for us this morning. Small world evoking a time, a place, an ambiance, packed with implication and intimation, packed so easily and quietly that their richness could easily be overlooked. She was often compared in visual arts to a Vermeer painting, this sort of intricate uh, detail and scene. Um, But even though her poems could easily be overlooked, if not read closely, her work was thankfully met with many close readers. To name only a few of the prestigious awards she received, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1956, the National Book Award for Poetry in 1970, and the National Books Critic Award in 1977. But now I am getting ahead of myself to turn back the clock and share with you some of how she arrived at that point. Let me tell you a little bit about her life. She was born in the year 1911 in what I'm told is pronounced Wista, Massachusetts. Uh, She was the second of five children, four of them daughters. Tragically, however, loss came early in her life. Her uh, father had a chronic incurable inflammation of the kidneys, then called Bright's disease, now just called nephritis. Uh, But at that time, in the early 20th century, it was the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. As a last-ditch attempt to care for her father's health, when Elizabeth was only four months old, both her mother and father went away for three months, leaving her in the care of family. But this last vacation was not enough, and her father died when she was only eight months old. The grief and stress in the wake of her father's death also exacerbated underlying mental health conditions with her mother. Her mother was sometimes physically abusive to young Elizabeth, and other times would leave for weeks or months at a time. Elizabeth eventually came to view her mother as one of her aunts. And over time, her mother was institutionalized for increasing lengths of time until she eventually lived in an institution for the rest of her life. Her mother died in 1934, two weeks before Elizabeth's graduation from Vassar College. In the wake of these early tragedies, it is in some sense that her family, that her friends, literally, physically saved her. But writing poetry was also this vital for her lifelong tool of survival, of perseverance, and of resilience. She began writing poems at age eight and benefited from some constructive editing advice from her Aunt Grace. Her first pay as a writer came at age 12 when her essay on Americanism won a $5 gold piece in an American Legion contest. She also spent a lot of time as a child memorizing famous poems. Another significant aspect of Bishop's Bishop's life is that although she never joined the cause of sexual liberation or identified herself publicly as a lesbian, she was clear from a young age that she loved the people she loved, most of whom happened to be women or girls her own age. It was also widely known that Bishop drank very heavily. And at least part of that was in response to discrimination against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens um, in this country that was very much the case throughout her adult life. To name one among many examples, her tenure from 1949 to 1950 as U.S. Poet Laureate, known then as consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress. So she was in D.C., you know, at the Library of Congress. That was in the middle of this 10-year period in which six 
1,000 federal employees were fired for being homosexuals in in a so-called morality and decency campaign that was nearly as visible as the concurrent um, witch hunt for Communist Party members and sympathizers. So that was what she lived in and among. As a result, Bishop never described Alice Methfezel as anything but her friend. We're just good friends. Uh, Never as lover, never as partner, words that might have begun to seem right if Elizabeth had lived a decade longer. Relatedly, the final two decades of her life were during the height of second-wave feminism, which began in the early 1960s. Elizabeth died in the late 70s. And although she was supportive of women's equality, she was resistant to some trends in women's liberation. I mentioned Adrienne Rich earlier. Adrienne wanted her to be part of this, put her poetry in like a collection of women poets. She's like, I don't want to be in a collection of women poets. I want to be a collection of great poets, right? You know, period. Uh, in particular, again, she didn't want to be known as the first one, you know, she didn't like being introduced as the first woman poet to teach creative writing at Harvard. That was true. Uh, and, or, and she didn't really want to be known as a woman poet at all. Just a great poet. Period. Full stop. And although she was a famous poet, there was no convincing the dean at Harvard to make an exception and allow her to keep teaching after the spring of 77 when she turned 66, the mandatory retirement age for non-tenured faculty members. Perhaps part of the reason was that Elizabeth had been at best a diffident teacher of creative writing. That was actually another phrase she despised, creative writing, uh, along with that trendy term, creativity. And her literature seminars attracted only a handful of students each year. Many were scared off by her requirements that they memorize poetry. You know, she would make, she was old school. She'd make recommendations like, work on your meter, but try it in Latin. You know, because she'd assumed you knew Latin, of course. You're at Harvard, right? This was the age of poet teachers, but Elizabeth was not one of them. Her poetic gift had come early to her in a time of great need. She had nurtured it as it had nurtured her, not in a classroom, but in solitude in libraries, an apartment in New York City, in rented rooms, in a White House in Key West, and in a studio in Brazil, and how could she advise students to do other than what she deeply knew? But what she did leave behind was the legacy of her poetry. In the end, she died quite suddenly and unexpectedly of a cerebral aneurysm on October 6, 1979. She was 68. She had been preparing to go out to dinner, had been occupied with her usual tasks throughout the day. She wrote a letter that day about how to write proper footnotes for poems. Uh, Her friends and colleagues were, of course, shocked, but quickly um, planned together a memorial service for her at Harvard later that month to celebrate her life. In that spirit, I'll end with this passage from near the end of Megan Marshall's biography of um, Elizabeth Bishop. If her writing had not exactly shaken the world or so far claimed a wide readership, writing had always saved her. What we seem to want in art, Elizabeth once said, is the same thing necessary for its creation. A self-forgetful, perhaps perfectly useless concentration. In this sense, it is always escape, don't you think? Characteristically, she had rendered her most important statement as a parenthetical aside, followed by a question. But she knew the answer. Poetry had been her refuge, her escape. Amidst deep sorrow, it had freed her. In that same spirit of carving out time and space for art, 
to discover what creative energies might be lying dormant within, within each of us, I invite you to rise in body or spirit. Let's sing together hymn 352, Find the Stillness. <laughs>